kid, I really like Superman. Superman, Superham? <laughs> hey Gonzalo, come on up, man. It's gonna be a rough day. <laughs> Superman was, I thought, the best hero. Batman's good, I like him. Spider-Man's great, I like him. But there was something so great about the strength of Superman. And so I like to occasionally dress up as Superman uh, from time to time. I went to a, I went to a Halloween party, I know, and should talk to my father about it later. I was disappointed in him, too. <laughs> went to a Halloween party, and I knew they were going to have a costume contest, and I was so excited because I was going to be Superman, and no doubt about it, if I'm Superman, I'm going to win the contest. So back in the 80s, we had these things, and they were called underoos. I don't know, some of you of a certain age are aware of what they were. Basically, it was a t-shirt and underwear set that you could wear, and they came in all your favorite superhero colors. And so so I decided I would be Superman at the, at the costume party. So I put on my Superman underoos t-shirt, I put on my blue jeans, and I put on my Superman underoo underwear over my jeans because that's what he looked like, and I was dashing. And I, I put the towel, the red towel, around my neck and safety pinned it and went to the party. I walked into the party confident, knowing that my underoos would win me the day. And I walked into the basement of the party, and you can picture it. There's like wood paneled walls and shag carpet. Yeah, it was that long ago. And I walked in and checking out the scene, scoping out my competition. There's a Batman over there. It's pretty bad. There's a Spider-Man over there, Wonder Woman. Oh, there's a Chewbacca over there. And back in the day, we had these, these, these like, they're like onesies that were made out of plastic. I don't know if you remember those, but they just, the costume was made of plastic. It's the most flammable thing you've ever seen in your life. You just get near a flame, boom, it was gone. It was a lot of fun for Halloween. And I'm surveying the scene, and I, I catch eyes with this girl. Her name was Mary Cox, and she had a Native American costume on. So we went to the costume contest. We all lined up, and the judges came, and they looked at us all, and they said, okay, let's see. And they walked by with their very official-looking clipboards, and they went to confer, and they came back and said, the winner of the costume contest is, and I got ready and prepared to accept my prize, and they said, Mary Cox, the Native, Native American. brought her the team, the money, all the acclaim, all the prizes that she got that should have been mine. And I cried off in the street. You feel bad for me, don't you? You're really quiet. You're like, Jesus. I'm okay, I promise. I'm like, do you need ministry? Do we need to pray for you? You missed the prayer team, but we could work something out. I promise I'm fine. But have you ever experienced that kind of a moment in your life? No? Gonzalo, I'm going to need you, man. Have you ever experienced that kind of a moment where you got passed over, where somebody else got selected instead of you, where, <laughs> where you sat back while somebody else got all the goods, all the stuff that, that you thought would be yours or that used to be yours, and now it seems that they're fully enjoying it while you're off in the corner by yourself with pretty much nothing. It's this idea that Paul's kind of dealing with in Romans chapter 11 that we're going to talk about today. But before we get there... There's this popular bumper sticker that maybe you've seen. It says, be patient, God's not finished with me yet. 
really do that one. It's nice. It basically says, hey, I'm a jerk, but give me some time. That's kind of what it says. I think we need a response to that. We need a response bumper sticker that we can all put on our bumpers, and it simply says something like, I don't know, I'm trying to be patient with you, bro, but God's taking a really long time on you. <laughs> like, I see the way you drive. Like, it's an issue. It's just not processing as long, as, as quickly along as I would like for it to. The reality is all of us are in a process when it comes to following Jesus. One Chapel has a vision. We want to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. We want people who get static and stuck to make a move from wherever they are to wherever God has planned for them. That's what we're all doing here. And by the way, you're a part of that. It's not just my job, and it's not just the band's job, and it's not just Christy Nelson who leads our groups. It's not, it's not just our job. It's all of our jobs. And we think that everybody who follows Jesus should go through a little bit of a journey. You should experience God, and that should happen over and over in your life with him. After you've experienced him, you should uh, find freedom. Settle your yesterday and get rid of your bags and find actual freedom that Zach was talking about today in the middle of worship. It's available for you. And once you find freedom, then you start to discover your purpose. Why on earth am I here and what did God create me to do? And then when you've discovered a little bit of that, now you're ready to go. You get to start making a difference. Actually making a difference in the world. Everybody, make no mistake. If you call yourself a one chaplain, one chapelonian, one chapel family member. That's the journey that we are hoping that you take, where you actually find yourself full bore, full on, discovering purpose, making a difference in the world that you live in. For some of us, we're kind of at the beginning of that journey, and it's exciting, and we just met Jesus, and it's fun, and everything's kind of puppy dogs and rainbows everywhere we look. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And you see Jesus moving in your heart, and you're changing, and it's, it's really great. Others of us, that's happening pretty quickly. You know, we're kind of flying through it. On the journey, others of us, a little more slow and kind of, just kind of we're plodding through, kind of making it. And others of us actually feel like we've just kind of stopped. I'm just, I'm not progressing anymore. My habits aren't changing. My attitude isn't changing. I'm losing hope that God's ever going to help me or do anything with me. I feel like I've just kind of stalled out in my life. And so I'm thinking about jumping ship. I just want to, I just want to get out. And when that happens, you're tempted to think that God has given up on you. I'm going to choose somebody else because this girl isn't working. Truth is, for a lot of us, there are times when we wonder if God has given up on us. Did he go another direction? Like, I haven't measured up. I failed. Uh, these other people seem so blessed. I, they come into church, and they're just singing along. Oh, Jesus, you're the best. And they're just so, they're so excited about everything. Hey, brother, how are you this morning? And I hate them, right? You've experienced it. It just seems like God's doing so much in their life and not in mine. I used to have something special, but I don't anymore. Did God go with somebody else? It's like that time, it's like when you, you get a house and you, you're going to sell it. Have you ever done this? Like Maria and I, we were really bad. We would buy these houses. Like we had a couple houses in Colorado Springs, and we didn't put blinds or curtains or anything forever. Like, like we, had, we had paper blinds, like the kind that you like peel and stick on your windows, you know, from Home Depot. We had those for, I'm not going to tell you how long. And we just lived with that for a long time. And then you're going to sell. So you go, ooh, hey, we should do a little work here. So you buy some blinds. And you put curtains up, and you fix the kitchen, and you remodel the bathroom, and then you finish. And what do you do? You go, I love this house. I want to live in this house. I don't want to sell this house. You can't have it. It's mine. 
old experience thing that I had that was so good. So when that happens, what do you do? And how can you be sure that God has not written you off and he's not finished with you? How can you know that God hasn't moved on? My friend, Britt Hancock, he's a missionary to Mexico, and he says, if you're still breathing, God, you still move. That's how he talks. Is he right? We're in the middle of this message series called Life in the Spirit, working our way through Romans. And in Romans 9, 10, 11, that's what the Apostle Paul is wrestling with. It seems like the majority of Jewish people have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Now all these Gentiles, these non-Jews, these other people are coming into faith. And it seems like Israel has been left behind. They've been replaced. They've been forgotten. Like God has gone on and given up on them. He chose somebody else to do what he wants to do in the earth. Not only are they left behind, but they're kind of looking around going, I'm, I'm a little jealous of what these non-Jews have. As Paul wrestles with all of this, I think he discovers some steps for this process for us. And some things that we can do when we're tempted to think that God has given up on us and we feel left behind or jealous, looking around going, am I on the right? And so I want to take just a few minutes and give you three things that I think Paul kind of points to as he argues himself through this in Romans chapter 11. And we're going to stop in Rome, start in Romans 11, 1 through 2, where Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. I think the first thing that Paul would encourage all of us to do is just stop for a second and look. Just stop for a second and look around. Stop going down the downward cycle and spiral. And thinking, God doesn't care. He's given up on me. And look around and see what God might actually be doing. And Paul, in this first verse, he's outright asking the question, did God reject the nation of Israel? I mean, we were foolish and we rejected him. We didn't obey him. So now, is he done with us? And his response is a quick and wholehearted, no way, not by a long shot. What's the proof that he offers? Paul says, the proof is he, in, he, in fact, he himself, he's Jewish. Read it again, Romans 11, 1. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people. He's saying the fact that Paul, Paul, the Israelite, is also Paul, the follower of Jesus, leads him to the truth that God does, did not reject his people, Israel. Because Paul is a Judean. He came in. He's part of it. This phrase about being rejected comes right out of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, where the prophet Samuel, he's kind of giving his farewell speech before he dies, and he recounts all of Israel's sins. He just lays them all out, detail after detail, one after the other. It's a really wonderful speech. And he, he concludes at the end of it, he says, even though, despite all of Israel's failures, God still will not reject Israel. He says, in fact, in 1 Samuel 12, 22, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you. And the reason that God remains faithful to them and to us is simply because of who he is. Exodus 34 would call him the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. See, Paul knew this. So in spite of Israel's failure to believe in Jesus, God would remain faithful to his promises to Israel because that's who he is and that's what he does. And he keeps going on then in, this, in verse 2 saying these incredible words, whom God foreknew. Israel's failure and rebellion, it didn't take God by surprise. God didn't say, oh, oh, they messed up. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Oh, what am I going to do? Oh, what's the plan now? He knew from the beginning of time what they would do. And 
guess what everybody? You know what you want to do. She knew every failure, and still she decided to get that big SAT. She knows all your failures, and I think this is where we find our first step in the process. When you think maybe God has passed you on, stop and look for God in the small things. Stop and look for him because he's there. But we want the big things. See, it's the big things that kind of knock us off course, isn't it? It's financial trouble. It's issues in your marriage. It's that job layoff. All of that stuff, the big stuff, keeps us from seeing the small things that God is doing. For Paul, the big thing is it seems like the majority of the Jews have said no to Jesus. But the small thing is I'm a Jew, and I said yes. Small things helped him understand what God was doing in the big things. And I think that's how it works. If you can find God operating in the small things, you can have faith that he's operating in the big things too. The small things where we see God working the most. Several years ago, J.P. Morgan, the bank, <coughs> they made a critical error. And they forgot to pay the renewal for their domain name. So they were disconnected from their website. They were disconnected from their email. This $21 billion company forgot to pay a $35 bill, and they lost tons of money and lots of customers because they made one mistake in the small things. Small things matter more than the big things. I've kind of experienced some of this in my life. Most of you know I was a pastor, a youth pastor in Colorado Springs, and our church went through a really difficult scandal, really hard days, and a year from that scandal, then uh, we had a, a shooting on our campus. I will never forget that day. We're dealing with all the pain and heartache of, of this betrayal that we felt from our senior pastor. We're trying to keep everything together. Pastor Ross is leading the charge. We're trying to keep everything together. And a shooter comes on our campus and shoots a bunch of people. We lost two teenage girls that day. And I'll never forget the day with my kids, with my daughter Aurora, she was so little, and Ewan was a baby running and hiding, listening to the sounds of gunshots, that imagery will never leave. My friend and me, Jared Newman, he was a junior high pastor, and he worked with me. We, <laughs> we were hiding, and we grabbed little cans of paint because that's all we could find. If someone comes in, we just want to have something to try to defend our kids. That image, of course, is locked in my mind forever. But I know what it's like then to be the youth pastor of that church. And I don't know if you know this, but parents aren't super pumped to send their kids to a, a church that had a scandal and a shooting. Like, that's not, hey, yeah, go there. That sounds great. That, that doesn't work like that. And so you better believe that there were lots of days where I felt like he has given up on me. I'm done. He chose somebody else. very difficult days. But I saw God working in all those circumstances, in those small things. Even that shooting that day. It's amazing story after story after story we heard. For one, snow came down that night before, and even though we were all Coloradans, people didn't show up to church. Just a lot of people didn't come to church when normally they would. God was doing something. It seemed small, but it's a big deal. Story after story after that shooting had dad saying, my family just didn't go to church that day. I woke up and I just felt like, you know what? I just want to hang out with the family and make some pancakes. And they stayed home and made pancakes and didn't go to service. That story happened over and over and over and over again. Guess what? That was a little small thing to that 
family that have really big consequences for their life. God did a bunch of really small things to protect a whole bunch of people because that story I just told you could have been a lot worse. You have to stop and look around for where is God working in the small things. I think the second thing that Paul would remind us is that we need to remember God's goodness. He says in Romans 11 too, God didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? And he said, Lord, Elijah said, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me. What was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Paul's remembering here. Even though he feels like all these people have left and he may be all alone. He remembers the prophet Elijah saying these very things. I'm alone. They're trying to kill me. This is over. God, you must be done with me. And God said, no, Elijah, I have 7,000 prophets that I have reserved, a remnant. And I always gather a remnant. And Paul's reminded in verse 5 that this is what, sorry, in verse 4, I reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There are more prophets than, than Elijah. God kept the remnant. And in verse 5, he says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant here. This day, where I am, chosen by grace. What God did in the past, he's doing again now. And when I don't see it, and I don't feel it, and I don't understand it, I can look to the past, and I can pull that forward, and I can know that God's still here today. And I think that leads us to our second step, to just remember. Remember that you don't see everything God is doing. You don't see it. And frankly, he's God. He doesn't have to show you everything that he's doing. But that's the way that we want it. But God's work is often hidden from our eyes. You don't see it. You don't see how he's working in this thing that you thought was a coincidence, but it's not. You don't see him working in that, that meeting, that, that, that thing that seemed like it was chance and it happened, but it wasn't chance. It was God moving things forward and orchestrating and directing. You can see it. I saw it. I saw it after that story. So after the shooting happened and after we... Man, we just, we just stayed put. We hunkered down. We ministered to families. We helped everywhere that we could. A new pastor came in and kind of took the charge, and we helped him for two years or so. And we helped build that church. And, and I just want to give you a good report. That church is alive today and thriving and doing great, and thank God, because that's a miracle. But, but that church is actually the church that sent us, that gave us money and resources and people like we had about 12 families move with us from Colorado Springs to come plant one chapel sent from that church. Thank God for all of them. But me and my wife, we thought we were supposed to go and help Ross and Amy plant one chapel. So in 2010, we loaded up the truck and we moved to Beverly. Sorry, I said it was, did not mean for that to come out. Wow, I am old. Just for the record, that show was before me. I didn't really watch it. I'm so young. Anyway, so some of you are young are like, what's going to happen? Um, so, what was I saying? It was probably important, more important than this. So we decided to come, and um, we loaded up the truck, and we, we put all our stuff, and we came down here. We stayed with a couple for some friends for a month, and we, uh, the church that I came from that sent us out gave us about three months' pay, which is so generous. Actually, four months' pay altogether to help us kind of make the next step. And so um, we were living with a family, and we were like, well, my, the money's running out. I'm about to get my last paycheck, and then – I don't know what 
I hope that the church, you know, really is moving as we plant and, and it can sustain us as we serve. But, but I don't know. And Ross said, you probably shouldn't come. It's a bad career choice. You should probably just stay here and be successful rather than coming with us. He tried to get rid of me, but I said no. And I showed up with my wife, and we had a mortgage in Colorado Springs because this was 2010, and the housing market was bad. Um, we had an apartment here. We had, uh, we had two cars. We had a storage unit. Um, we had three children and no paycheck, no job. I was just serving the church. And there were many days where I said, Maria, today's the day I need to go get a job. Just five o'clock in that afternoon, we open up the mail and there would be a check from a friend saying, God put you on our heart. Towards the end of it, it happened again. I was like, oh, man, maybe in January we can start being paid, but there's still nothing coming in. And it's October. And, Maria, I think I need to go get a job at Starbucks. So I think this is it. <laughs> and I really – never mind. I'm not going to continue that path. So so it's lame coffee. There, I said it. And I I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do it, but I, I think we we got to survive this. And so I went to a conference, and a pastor who really loves us, he pulled me into his office and he said, hey, listen, um, I just want you to know we love you and appreciate we're on your side. I want to give you $15,000 to do this. Remember the crying with the – I cried again. I think I cried again right in his office. And, and God just provided. What's my point? My point is, is that today there are lots of moments where I go, oh, God, I don't, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Things aren't working out the way that I wanted it to. God, I, things are not the way in my family that I want it to be. Things are not in the church the way that I want it to be. God, I just feel like there's more. God, where are you? God, are you going to come through? God, are you going to do this for us? And I stop, and I remember what happened. I look back and remember. Do you remember when God let your family live for a year with no paycheck just because he loved you and he had a purpose for you and he proved it? How dare I think today God doesn't have a purpose for me. God doesn't care about me. I'm not supposed to be here doing this. I am, and I know it because God proved it in the past, and he's going to prove it again. Thank you, you guys, that are with me. <laughs> the rest of you, I'm glad you're enjoying today. <laughs> Listen, the same thing can happen for you. And if you look back, I know that's a crazy story. It is crazy. $15,000, that hasn't happened a lot in my life. Boy, God, could that? Well, we'll talk about that later. It hasn't happened that way a lot, but there are lots of other moments where God showed up, and he did something, and he was faithful. And when I'm tempted to say, oh, he left me behind, oh, he doesn't care anymore, oh, he's not going to come through, I can stop and say, no, he's going to come through. He did in the past. He'll do it again. And remember, God works a lot of times in ways that we can't see at the time. That's why it's important to remember those days. Lock them in. Write them down. Make a video. Whatever. Do something to remember the thing that God does because you're going to need it later. Trust that he's working even though you can't see it. I think that's why he calls us to it. The third thing I think Paul would encourage us to do, which is easy to say, hard to do, is just trust God in everything. Romans eleven seven says, what then? What Israel sought so earnestly, they didn't obtain, but the elect did. The other ones did. The others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so they could not see, ears so they couldn't hear, 
to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they can't see and their backs be bent forever. <laughs> what is Paul talking about in this really encouraging passage? He's talking about two communities, the Israelites and the non-Jews, the Gentiles, that are starting to come in, forming the Christian community, kind of forming the church. And Paul's making the point. The nation of Israel, for the most part, has rejected Jesus. And so God starts working with this other community, the Gentiles, the people who weren't Jewish. And thank God that he allowed us all in and grafted us in. That's for another time. To start forming the church. Even though that's true, Paul also makes the point in that verse, still, God hasn't rejected them. God is faithful to his covenant people. In spite of their actions, he doesn't reject them, even though they might be sidelined for a while. Like a star baseball player kind of sitting the bench so the rookie can get in and grow and develop in a play, as a player. That's kind of what's happening here. The reason Paul says Israel is benched is, is in verse 25. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. <laughs> That's a warning for all of us who aren't Jewish, by the way. I don't want you to be conceited. Don't think this is now all about you. That's not the point. I don't want you to be ignorant. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. A hardening in part until God finishes the work that he wants to do. Just like that player getting benched, it gives the opportunity for a rookie to get in the game. That's kind of what Paul is talking, talking about here. God using Israel's lack of faith in Jesus as the Messiah to bring in all of us, all the Gentiles. And Paul's even arguing that God is doing it intentionally. That God is working intentionally. Israel would see it happening, and in their jealousy, they would start to return to Jesus' work. They would start to be transformed. Here we find our third step in the process. When you think God's given up on you, just trust God to use every aspect of your life in a positive way. Every aspect of your life. Today I just think, are too pessimistic. Too many naysayers, too many doomsayers. This went wrong in my life, so God doesn't care. It's not the way that this works. God can use every aspect of your life for his work. God was doing it with Israel. He was directing Israel. They sat on the bench. He had them, but even though they were on the bench, he still had them on the team. God was working with Israel, even in their unbelief, in a positive way in the lives of all of these Gentiles. He was still involved and working together for their good and for his good. So this is my question for all of you today. Are you willing to submit to that process? Can you trust God to use every aspect of your life in a positive way? Not just the good things, not just the things that you like. Because I think often it's the very things that we wish we didn't have in our lives that God gives us to accomplish his plan and purposes. That's stuff that we wish we weren't going through. He uses for his own design. Do you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? back and read it to you guys. I'm sorry, I wasn't clear. It wasn't hypothetical. Do you do you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Some of you don't. That's fine. You should go read it. It's really incredible. But let me break it down for you really quick. Ultimately, God's purpose and destiny for Joseph was that he would save his family and millions of other people when there was a famine in Egypt. But Joseph would have never been in a position to save millions as a second in command of Egypt if he never met Pharaoh's butler and baker. Joseph would have never met Pharaoh's butler and baker if he hadn't been thrown into prison. Joseph wouldn't have been thrown into prison if he never would have been falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife. 
Joseph wouldn't have been in Potiphar's house to be accused of that if he'd never been sold into slavery. And Joseph never would have been sold into slavery unless his brothers would have given him, sorry, if his brothers wouldn't have sold him into slavery. And Joseph never would have been sold if he never received that coat of many colors from his dad. All of these different pieces. Ooh, a coat. How great. God loves me. My dad loves me. Everything's good. <laughs> Leads to slavery. Oh, bad. God hates me. God wants to give, do away with me. This is terrible. I'm sure Joseph had his days, don't you? To, to oh, now I'm in Potiphar's wife. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty important. Potiphar, he's given me all this responsibility. This is great. The wife's looking at me weird, but this seems like a pretty good situation. And he's accused of raping her, and now he's in prison. Okay, oh, God doesn't like me. God's mad at me. God doesn't want to work with me. God has, for, he has forsaken me. It's over. Then he meets the butler and the baker, and he, he talks about their dreams, and he interprets them. He says, hey, when you go before the Pharaoh, remind him that I'm down here. And they go, and they forget, and he's just in jail for a long, long time. You can see it over and over and over again. Surely during those years, Joseph must have thought, God gave up on me, and he picked somebody else. But he had it, because he still had an ultimate purpose for him, and he was going to work it out for his good. The very things we, we have in our lives, sometimes they're the very things that God can and will use to accomplish his plan for him. You know, it was probably about 12 years from being sold into slavery for Joseph to becoming second in command of Egypt. 12 years. 23 years probably to be reunited from slavery to be all the way to saving everybody and being reunited with his father and his family moving there. 23 years. Three weeks go by in a bad situation for us. And we go, oh God. Why is thou forsaken me? Three weeks. Twenty-three years. Am I suggesting that you just need to hold tight for twenty-three years and that's the way it's going to be? No. But I don't know that it's not going to be that way. What I do know is that God is going to accomplish His plan for you. And if you'll trust Him, if you'll just be patient, everybody, God's not finished. Stop and look around. Remember the things that he's done. Trust that he's going to use every aspect of your life for his good, even your failures. All of them. Can you grab that moment? If you all would, maybe just close your eyes for a moment. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God will never give up on you. Never forget. And all I want you to know today is that truth. God will never give up on you. Never forget. I know that some of you today, you feel like it. You feel like you've given up. You feel like you've But there's probably no doubt that in the room, some of you have thought for so long that God's given up on you, that you really weren't going to survive this thing. You ran from it. And today, as I'm speaking these words from the scriptures, something happening in your heart, 
talking to the rest. You thought you'd win with somebody else. You didn't think he'd embrace you until he took you off the team, did you? No matter how far you run, how foolish you think, the Father is waiting with his arms open wide, ready to receive you back to himself. All you have to do is accept him back. Say, yes, I want to give my life to you. I want to come home. I want you to forgive me for the life that I salvation that you secured. I want to pay for my sins. You paid it on the cross. I want to pay that bill. I want to let you in. So with your eyes closed, if that's you, in your words, maybe you would pray something like this. Just use, just steal some of my words. I'll just help you with these ones. God, I want to come home. Please forgive me. I've been running a long time. that one. 